What's up, y'all? Hey, it's me, your boy, Ruby Rube, coming at you from the Gathering Strength Podcast. The podcast where I'm going to be diving into a fascinating book that I read, you know, a, a number of years back. This book should be on everyone's must-read list. Whether you read it or listen to it, get it into your mind. Let those thoughts bounce around in your head so that they can help guide you into a more desirable destination. Yeah, I'm sure where you're at is great, grand, gravy, but where you could be, hey, that's a lot better than where you're currently at. And don't let who you are today stop you from becoming who you could be. Because man, that person is so much better than who you are right now, right? That person has that buff body, mind, spirit, and bank. And that's the whole point of creating this podcast. I want to see you jacked. I want your veins to have veins. I want you to look like Arnold Schwarzenegger via 1972 when he's dominating the bodybuilding world. Now this book, The Psychology of Money, it's written by Morgan Housel and it explores the insights of of personal finance and wealth mindset. Join me as I break down key concepts from the book and I offer practical and relatable insights for all you gathering strengthers out there. You know, I need to think of a name to identify and call out the Gathering Strength podcast listeners. If you have a suggestion, go ahead and submit it. You can reach out to me on my Instagram any of my social medias, and I need to develop a name to call you people out there. Anyways, onward into the book, into the wisdom, into the nuggets and gold. Now, here are some key outlines within this book. First of all, this book, it helped me to gain a deeper understanding of not only how the world works a little bit more, but how money works, and also, more importantly, my relationship with money. Ultimately, if you don't have an idea of who you are, where you want to go, what you want to do, why you put in all those hours at at your job, and why you buy the things that you buy, or why you want the things that you want, if you don't know that stuff, then you are adrift. You are aimless. You have no purpose, and you can potentially be suffering much more than than you need to. And that is why it is important to obtain knowledge from the more sophisticated people out there who have actually done research and thought about the human condition. And because money is such an important aspect of the human condition... You know, being able to earn, save, and invest. That is how the world works. And we want to obtain and acquire the knowledge that can help us navigate the vicissitudes of life. Man, come on. Are you following along? Anyways, back into this book. The book is going to help you understand the psychology of money. It will explore the idea that money is not just about numbers, but deeply influenced by our emotions, behaviors, and attitudes. And it discusses the concept of financial well-being and how it extends beyond monetary wealth. Before we get any deeper into this podcast, man, I need to break down what money is. I'm sure we all know what money is, right? My four-year-old daughter, she knows what money is. I hand her a dollar and, you know, she thinks she can go to Target and buy something worth $50. But hey, little girl, that's not how. You don't have enough, right? So my aim is to help you illuminate exactly what money is. Like like I said, I'm sure you have an elementary uh, level understanding of what money is. Hey, you know what? Maybe you're an economic major and you have a a master's degree in what money is. Well, this is going to be a refresher course. Number one, money is for meeting our basic needs. Money allows us to fulfill our basic needs such as food, shelter, clothing, and health care. 
It provides us with the means to purchase essential items and services that support our well-being. Money also provides security. Money helps create a sense of security by providing a financial safety net. It enables us to handle unexpected expenses, emergencies, or periods of financial stability with a greater ease. Now, in that aspect, let's say you you have a car and you're driving down the freeway and it breaks down and you take it to the maintenance shop and they say, hey, that's going to be a thousand dollars. But guess what? You don't have a thousand dollars. Now you're going to be suffering, right? You're, you're going to be taking a financial hardship and that's going to affect your emotions. That's going to affect your life because now you may have to go without a car. You may need to go into debt. Essentially, money is going to help uh, provide a financial safety net. It's going to soften the blow of you know having your, your radiator blowout or having whatever car mechanical problem uh, that is you know jacking up your morning. Money is going to help lessen and soften that blow. Otherwise, you're going to have to take it on the chin. And hopefully you're able to get back up because a lot of people, they get financially hit and it devastates them. You don't want to be like that. Money also helps enable education and skill development. Money plays a crucial role in assessing education and the skill development opportunities. It allows us to pursue higher education, attend vocational training programs, or acquire new skills that can enhance career prospects. Now, Warren Buffett, he has one of my favorite quotes. He simply stated, the more you learn, the more you earn. And one of the best investments, according to Warren Buffett, he says the best investment you can make is within yourself. Unfortunately, hey, that investment is going to cost some money because nothing is free in life. That's why it is so important to have that buff bank. Another important aspect of money is it can facilitate experiences and enjoyment. Money provides the means to engage in experiences and activities that bring joy, such as travel, entertainment, hobbies, and leisure pursuits. It enables us to explore new places, indulge in recreational activities, and create lasting memories. Now, this reminds me of a quote by Seneca. And Seneca says... He said a quote over 2,000 years ago. He was writing to his buddy Lucilius, and his letters were published in the book Letters of a Stoic. And he said something in the ballpark of, no matter where you go, you cannot escape yourself. While, let's say you, you pay $10,000 for a cruise, or you know some very expensive cruise, you're, you're going to be traveling across the world, and you find yourself at a, one of the most beautiful beaches and you have all of the luxuries you have butlers you have someone to put massaging oils on your back and you have a masseuse just everything you have jet skis just name it it's all there right while money bought you all that stuff if your head is not right if you are filled with depression if you are filled with a guilty conscience, if you have a sick child, just name one of the millions of things that can ruminate and ruin your vibe, your chakras, and put you off. You're not going to be able to enjoy it. While money did provide you with those experiences, if your head is not right, unfortunately, you know, that's something money can't buy. No matter where you are, no matter where you go, you can't run from your problems. You can't run from your addictions, your vices. You can't run from your bad marriage, your broken relationships. You can't run from your broken spirit. And unfortunately, those are all things that money can't buy. Number five, supporting personal and family goals. 
Now, money helps us achieve personal and family goals, such as starting a business, buying a home, or saving for retirement. It provides the resources to invest in our aspirations and work towards long-term objectives. Um, Another aspect of money is giving back and making a difference. Money can be used to support charitable causes and make a positive impact in the lives of others. It allows us to contribute to organizations and initiatives that address societal issues, promote education, health care, or environmental sustainability. There was a excerpt from the book Up From Slavery written by Booker T. Washington. And once again, he was a illiterate slave boy who rode to prominence. And one of the things he had to do was go out and fundraise money for the schools that he was creating. And he was able to incrementally uh, up his networking skills to where he was, you know, associating with kings and queens. And he said a striking sentiment that You know, these rich people, they have so much money that they put their money to work. They want to give away their money. They just have to find, you know, worthy causes to give their money to. And one of the ways that after we are, you know, done fulfilling all of our own personal goals, dreams, and desires, after we have provided ourselves with a sense of security and we have all of the things that we need. Hey, well, what are we going to do with with the leftover money? We don't want to just hoard it all. We want to be able to donate to charities. We want to be able to help lift up others. And we want to be able to put that money into people's hands who are going to be able to stretch out our dollar and get the most bang for the buck. And one of the ways we do that is by donating to uh, charities who know what they're doing. Another reason why we go to work and accumulate all this money and generate all this wealth is financial independence. Money offers a path to financial independence, granting us greater control over our lives and decisions. It allows us to have more choices and flexibility in pursuing our aspirations and living the life we desire. Now, money, it gives us more choices. Let's say, for example, you start a job and everything is going good. Good, great, grand. And then, unbeknownst to you, your supervisor, I don't know, there's something going on in that guy's life. Maybe he he has a sick child or he found out that his wife was cheating on him. And all of a sudden, that guy starts to become just a dickhead, right? And you can't stand him. Because you have saved your money. Because you have prepared and sacrificed. Guess what? If you are in a position of financial stability, financial independence, you can move on from that job. You don't have to take that guy's bullcrap anymore. Because you have a cushion of money that can afford you the luxury of time to Look for another job or start your own business or just do something else. Your money took the power back from that guy and his oppressive, tyrannical leadership skill. And hey, you can tell him to kick rocks. You can show him and tell him where to put that job. And you can take the high road and move on. Ultimately, when you have money, it gives you more options because if you don't have that money, if you don't have that financial cushion, if you don't have the savings, then you don't have any other choice other than to take all of the crap, all of the malarkey that that crappy supervisor, boss, or whatever you want to call him, you have no choice. You have to take it. That's why we save our money so that we can, hey, take some of that uh, that, that, that power back. Now, let's say for whatever reason, your job is going through cutoffs and, you know, you're a great employee, but, you know, these things happen. It happened all all in Silicon Valley where these big super uh, tech giants, they were laying off tens of thousands of, of, of people. Now, those people, they were all without a job. 
and if they don't have the financial security to you know pay their mortgage or their rent then hey you know those bills they always come due and now you're late and now you are potentially looking at being evicted well if you had that financial security you can stave off and provide that cushion of time and whatever mortgage company owns your bank hey you are taking the power back from them because if you didn't have that money then that bank is going to arrive at your doorstep with the sheriff and they're gonna be like hey you haven't paid your mortgage in three months so we are going to assert this contract that both you and I signed and it says that if you are delinquent for a certain amount of time you got to get the hell out now if you have the money you have the choice to pay your bills <laughs> you know it's gonna be as simple as that money grants you options it grants you time it grants you a cushion it prevents needless suffering and that's why we go to work or at least that's why a level-headed mature evolved human being goes to work for all of those things that I just mentioned now a unsophisticated person they're just gonna be going to work to ball out to get the latest iPhone to get the newest Gucci sock, to get the the softest velour tracksuit so that they can, you know, post a, a selfie on Instagram to get all the people who that they don't even know, you know, for essentially for, for the likes. Buying things that you don't need to impress the people that don't even care about you and you don't even care about them. That is what a lesser evolved person, you know, goes to work to get that money you know, for for status, for superfluous, for all of those things that you know are not gonna fill even the tiniest cracks in our hearts and our souls. And that's why they will never get off that uh, that that rat race. Now, also going back. To the book now that we understand what money is and what the the purposes of money does or why, why we go out and, and get it man within this book is going to help you discover the relationship between money and happiness it's going to address common misconceptions and the role of financial choices in the overall well-being it's going to explore the concept of enough and how finding contentment with what you have can lead to a healthier financial mindset. That is an interesting concept, right? The concept of enough. How much is enough? That is going to vary widely between each individual. But take this story, for example. There are two people, Ronald Reed and Bernie Madoff, two completely different people. Ronald Reed was a humble janitor, and he was a janitor for his entire working career for like 30 years. But he he died with $8 million in his bank account. And the way that, that he did that was he was patient, he didn't you know, spend on superfluous things. He was able to find pleasure and joy in a simple cup of coffee in, you know, going to his local coffee shop and, you know, just sitting down, reading a book, solving, solving some puzzles. He found joy in that. Meanwhile, Bernie Madoff, he was a successful financial banker. And at one point, I believe he had $65 million in his, um, in, in investments. He was worth $65 million, right? And now he was ultimately convicted of uh, fraudulent schemes and he is now doing life in prison and he has no money. 
Now let's get into some interesting facts about this Bernie Madoff guy because, man, interesting story and it all comes down to greed. Now this is where our financial behaviors dictate you know, how we turn out financially. And it's not about how much money you make because Bernie Madoff, he was making millions and millions of dollars legally and then he got greedy and then he started scheming. He, he made a, a Ponzi scheme, ultimately robbing people of billions of dollars. Now, Bernie Madoff, he was a American financier and former chairman of the NASDAQ Stock Exchange. He's best known for orchestrating one of the largest financial frauds in history, commonly referred as the Madoff Ponzi scheme. Bernie Madoff started his career in the financial industry and gained a reputation as a successful and respected investment banker. He founded his own firm called Bernie L. Madoff Investment Securities, LLC, in 1960. So, man, this guy was on top of his game. He was the alpha of all alphas as it pertained to the financial um, industry. However, behind the scenes, he was running a massive fraudulent scheme. He promised high and consistent returns to his clients, including wealthy individuals, charities, and even celebrities. Madoff claimed to have a special strategy that could generate consistent profits, which attracted many investors. So there he is, lying, getting greedy, manipulating. Now, in reality, he was using money from new investors to pay returns to existing clients, creating a classic Ponzi scheme. He was not actually making legitimate investments or earning the high returns he promised. What an idiot, right? There he is, sitting at the top of the financial world. Already, you know, tens of millions of dollars to his name. And he's going to start scheming for more. Can you imagine, you know, having everything, all of the riches, all of the luxuries... And still wanting more. Man, what does that feel like? To have greed at that level? Come on. Now, in 2018, as a result of the global financial crisis, many investors began requesting withdrawals from their accounts. Uh-oh! Unable to meet these demands, Madoff finally confessed to his sons that the investment firm was nothing more than a massive fraud. In December 2018, Bernie Madoff was arrested and charged with securities fraud. In 2009, he pleaded guilty to multiple charges, including operating the largest Ponzi scheme in history. He was sentenced to 150 years in prison, one of the hardest sentences ever given for financial crimes. The Madoff Ponzi scheme caused massive financial losses, estimated to be billions of dollars, and had a devastating impact on the victims, many of whom lost their life savings or faced significant financial hardship. Hey, you know what? Sounds like Bernie Madoff could have benefited from this book, The Psychology of Money, because that would have illuminated, you know, some of these idiosyncrasies and some of these little quirks and characteristics that, man, perhaps would have illuminated some red flags and perhaps he, he, he could have pumped the brakes. Now that is going back to the sentiment of enough. Now, within this book, you know, the psychology of money, it helps you to be able to identify your enough moment. When is enough? Because essentially, the human condition, if you let it get out of control, you can you can essentially all be in a state of always wanting more. More, more, more. More superfluous. More money. More this, more that. And man, how many instances or examples do we need that indicate money doesn't buy happiness. We just need to look at all of the celebrities who have had everything, the money, the fame, the riches, and ultimately ended up uh, unhappy, poor, broke, desolate, bankrupt, and in many cases, even killed themselves. Suicide. 
to name a few, Robin Williams. You know, the, the, the sad clown had the money, the fame, the talent, the skills, the resources. Uh, killed himself. MC Hammer. Man, can't touch this. Man, he was in a, a wealthy financial situation. But because he didn't have the financial intelligence, there he is, broke. Mike Tyson. Even though he has bounced back significantly, uh, he, at one point, I think he spent $200 million. There was a, uh, I think it was on the Undisputed Truth, a, a little HBO special that he did. He talks about Don King and how Don King, man, took so much money from that young Mike Tyson. Now, Mike Tyson, he won the heavyweight championship at 19 years old, the youngest person to ever do it. And he just started knocking everybody out. And because he was such a phenom, the the most feared man on the planet, hey, you know what? The world just opened up its doors to Mike Tyson. And he just had, you know, $200 million. Now, because he was such a young kid and he didn't even know how money worked, the only thing he had reference to was, hey, I'm going to go ball out. I'm going to get the gold chains, the cars, the Gucci, this mansion's tigers. Man, he just spent all, all of his money, right? And he opens up and he talks about, you know, one of the ways that he lost his money. A cautionary tale. He had so much money that he didn't even keep track of it. He was just like, whatever, I'm going to hire this guy, Don King, the predator, right, to take care of his money. Now, Don King, he was a grown man. He knew a little bit of how the world worked, but hey, he was he was a greedy man too. And there was a, a, a moment in Mike Tyson's life where someone revealed one of the expenses that Don King was charging him for. And on one of the, the lines of bills that Don King charged him for, it was $80,000 a month for towel service. Yeah, go ahead and process that for a second. Here it is again. Don King was charging Mike Tyson $80,000 a month for towels. Yep, that is one way to quickly let all of your hard-earned money slip through the cracks of your fingertips, never to be returned again. Be careful who you are letting deal with your money, and hey, know, know where, where every single penny of all of your, your money goes. So we have... Robin Williams, Mike Tyson, who else did I mention? Uh, Scottie Pippen, uh, uh, Chris Cornell, that, that dude from Lincoln Park, Kurt Cobain. At the time of Kurt Cobain's suicide, he was worth $50 million. Let's go ahead and chalk that up to another example of money doesn't buy happiness. And you know what? There's a long list. Go ahead and Google those those unfortunate souls who had seemingly everything ultimately to, you know, end up face down in a gutter with a bullet in their head or with their pockets turned inside out only to reveal pocket lint. Now let us compare the difference between Bernie Madoff, who was a prolific, talented, educated, resourceful, and powerful in investment broker. And let's compare and contrast him to Bernie Madoff, who was a humble janitor who had little to no education, but outperformed that guy. Ronald Reed died with $8 million in his bank account. And Bernie Madoff, he's sitting in a prison cell, serving 150 years with no money to his name. Now, how does that happen? Well, the answer is behavior. Now, it is only within the financial world where someone such as Ronald Reed or you and me can outperform the most brilliant, 
the most highly credentialed person, such as an investment banker. We cannot outperform those guys if we do two things. Get a control on our behavior and harness the power of compounding interest. Now here's an article on The Motley Fool. It's about Ronald Reed. And it starts out, the title is, This Ordinary Guy, they're referring to Ronald Reed, amassed almost $8 million. Here's how he did it and how you might follow some of his ways. Now, when Ronald Reed died, a community in Vermont was surprised in 2015 when Ronald Reed, a retired gas station attendant and janitor, turned out to have been worth nearly $8 million upon his death. How Reed amassed such a vast sum may or may not surprise you, but you will probably be surprised that someone of modest means who didn't have a fancy job could grow so wealthy. You know what? Hey, that, they're talking about you and me. We're, so, we're people of modest means. We don't have fancy jobs. But guess what? We have the potential to grow our wealth by controlling our impulses and gaining clarity on where we want to go. Now, Ronald Reed's long life. He lived to 92 years old. And we saw him doing many things that many financial experts recommend. Here's a closer look at how he got so rich. 1. He was patient. Reed's wealth grew over many decades via the power of compounding. Here's a simplified example to help you appreciate the power of time and patience. Imagine that he was earning an annual growth rate of 10%. When he had amassed, say, $500,000, 10% of that would be a $50,000 gain for the year, taking him to $550,000. When he he hit one million, though a ten percent gain would get him a hundred thousand dollars, taking him to one point one million. At the three million point, a ten percent gain would be worth a whopping three hundred thousand dollars, and at five million, he would generate a whole half million dollars. Now he lived below his means, way below them. He drove an old car, an inexpensive car and kept his old coat together with safety pins. He didn't dine out frequently, except for inexpensive breakfast at his local hospital's cafe. He looked more down on his luck than wealthy, leading one neighbor to knit him a hat and another to pay for his meal. When visiting his lawyer, he reported that he would park fairly far away and take a longer walk than necessary to avoid having to put change in a parking meter. His recreation wasn't costly either. Instead of paying for time on a golf course or travel, Mr. Reed enjoyed chopping wood. He also saved him some money for heating. Oh, what? That that also saved him money for heating. He also avoided buying too many books by patronizing the local library. That's one uh, spending habit that I find myself investing in. I, I, I like to own my books. But hey, you know what? I'm not trying to die with $8 million in my bank, so, you know, I'm going to uh, permit myself to, you know, ball out on some books. Uh, The article goes on to say, you don't necessarily have to live as far below your means as Mr. Reed did. You can simply be frugal and spend a good sum less than you bring in, and in the process, build meaningful wealth. But if you choose to employ some extra frugality, you can really grow your money even more powerfully. Now to show as an example the power of compounding, there is a tool online and it's called the Investment Calculator. Now this is a calculator that I'm using through Capital Group American Funds. And it is a tool to let you see the power of compounding to project where your potential returns can land you. Now, the important thing about compounding is that it is not immediate. It is over time and it takes time to generate wealth. Now, I'm going to use, I'm going to punch in some figures, the starting amount. We're going to make a thousand dollar investment right now. And let's say you are 20 years old. Now, you're 20 years old and you put $1,000 into the S&P 500. 
I'm going to use the S&P 500 as an example because Warren Buffett, he suggests that us, you, people like you and me, the everyday American, to invest in the S&P 500. Now, historically, since the S&P 500 has been, has been up and running, the average return on investment is 8%. Now, if a 20-year-old were to put in $1,000 and leave it invested in the S&P 500 for 40 years. I'm not going to make any additional contributions. I'm just going to put $1,000 in the bank and leave it alone for 40 years. Now, with a hypothetical annual rate of return of 8% compounded annually, let's see, that $1,000 over 40 years is going to turn to $21,724. Now, let's play with some numbers. Now, let's say you're rolling around with an $80,000 truck, right? Because they're out there. An $80,000 truck. And let's say you're 30 years old. And you want to retire when you're 60. So, rather than buying a truck, you save up your $80,000 and you put it into a mutual fund that within the S&P 500 and you receive your hypothetical annual rate of 8%, you're 30 years old, you're going to let that sit and compound annually for 30 years. Your $80,000 is going to turn to $805,000. Now, There's people who say that they don't have money for, you know, this and that. But when you gain clarity on your financial goals and your financial uh, destination, you have to arrive at a definitive answer. What do you want? Do you want an $80,000 truck right now? If you do, hey, that's fine. But you need to at least acknowledge the money that you're leaving on the table. Now, that $80,000 truck, well, first of all, that is just the cost of entry because there's the true cost of ownership. I have a podcast episode that talks about the true cost of ownership because that truck is going to cost you, I don't know, maybe in the ballpark of $110,000 when it comes to oil changes, tires, you know, you're going to want to throw a lift on that. You're going to want to get some of those Yosemite Sam mud flaps. You know, you're going to have to spend money for insurance, gas, etc., etc. So your $80,000 vehicle is really going to cost you north of $110,000. And people, people who I know, they have the $80,000 truck, but they're not even homeowners. And they say that, you know, where I live, California, it's expensive to live here. Uh, this is so expensive, yada, yada. And I'm like, you know what? You are paying $80,000 for your truck over the course of six years. If you were to make that payment to yourself over six years, you would have $80,000. Now, whether you're paying it to the bank or or to yourself, you're going to pay either way. It's all on what do you want. Now, going back to that $80,000 investment, compounded 8% over the course of 30 years. Now, the true cost of ownership of that vehicle is, if you were to put that into the S&P 500, your ending investment is going to be $805,000. That's the true cost of ownership. Let's play with some more numbers because these numbers get even more astronomical. Now here's another little scenario. Let's say you're a 20-year-old and you have $1,000 and you put that into a mutual fund that tracks the S&P 500. You are going to hypothetically be getting the 8% compounded annually. You put that $1,000 in, 
and you have 40 years to invest that. Now, let's say you contribute $100 per month over the course of 40 years. Now, the total amount invested is going to be $49,000. But your ending investment, because it it has been compounded annually, is going to be $345,000. Essentially, your $49,000 that you diligently invested in over 40 years... That got you $345,000. Now ask yourself, hey, you know what? That extra $100 per month, you could have, I don't know, bought some Gucci socks. You could have bought some fancy cologne. You could have done all types of things with the extra you know, $49,000. But hey, what is the bigger goal? Financial security or balling out to buy more things to impress people who you don't even really care about and they don't even really care about you. It's important to identify what you want out of life. One more scenario because, man, it is fun playing with this calculator. It really puts in, into perspective the true cost of ownership. Now, I'm going to continue with the scenario of a 20-year-old, right? Because compounding works much easier. If I would have known this stuff early on, man, I'd be sitting, sitting so much better financially than where I'm currently at. And that, that's why I'm trying to spread this, this knowledge. I want these people out here to get their money. So once again, a 20-year-old invests in a mutual fund that tracks the S&P 500. They invest $1,000 that $1,000, they invest it for 40 years so that when they're 60 years old, they're going to have a little nest egg. And then their additional contributions per month, because you know what? As time goes on, you're going to get a better job. You're going to have more money. You're going to accumulate and gather your strength as it pertains to being able to add more value as you get older. And because you're adding more value, you're going to be rewarded with more money. And what what are you going to do with that money? You're going to save it. You're going to invest it because, hey, you have clarity. You know where this sacrifice of the small, insignificant, low-hanging fruits are today. You're going to say nay to those, and you're going for for that ultimate goal. So... Once again, you have the $1,000, you invest it for 40 years, and every single month, you save $1,800. Hey, that is not out of the realm of, of possibility. You could do it. That's nothing. You got it. Now, your total amount invested is going to be $865,000. That, that's a lot of money. But don't worry. You have time. Now, that amount invested, your ending investment balance is going to be $5,856,000. And sheesh. So once again, your $865,000 got you $5.8 million. And that is the power of compounding. That's why you want to do it at, uh, as early as possible. You know what? For all you old heads out there, I'm going to run some numbers just for you guys. All right, last example. Like I said, playing with this calculator, it's it's fun. And that is another sign that you're getting old when you have fun playing with a investment compounding calculator. Ay, ay, ay. I'm getting old. Anyways, here we are. Here's the scenario. You are 40 years old, just like me, right? I'm, I'm 40 years old. And... I have saved $20,000, right? Now, I'm going to do what Warren Buffett has suggested, which is invest in the S&P 500 for long term. And I want to retire when I'm 60 years old. Now, that's 20 years to invest. 40 plus 20 is 60. Now, the $20,000 is going to be Uh, hypothetically, an annual rate of return is going to be 8% compounded annually. And I'm going to additionally contribute $100 per month. That's doable, right? All I have to do is cut out some Starbucks and boom, 
there's my 100 bucks right there. Now, the total amount invested is going to be $44,000. My ending investment is going to be $150,000. So here we are, people. If you're 40 years old and you have some money lying around and you don't know what to do with it, you've never heard of compounding interest, there you are, man. Don't trust what I say. Go on to line, uh, go online, figure it out for yourself, and hopefully this sows a little seed of financial wealth and you can take your little acorn and let that grow into a mighty oak tree. And now you know it's going to grow because, hey, it, it, that is how Ronald Reed died with $8 million in the bank. Now, I don't want to die with $8 million in the bank. I, I want to have some fun with it. I want to go out, you know, once my nest egg is, is, you know, large enough and I've done my due diligence and I, and I can verify what I need on a month-to-month basis and all my bills are going to be covered and due. Sheesh, it's time to start spending. Now, yeah, like I said, you don't need to leave that much money behind. And there's a sentiment that, hey, I want to work all this time so that I can give it all. When I die, I give it all to my kids so that they have it easier. And unfortunately, that's not how it works either. You don't want to leave hordes and hordes and millions of dollars onto your kids because... Easy times make weak men. And if you think you can generate enough wealth to keep your entire legacy happy and fulfilled, then let me introduce you to Cornelius Vanderbilt. Now, at his time, Cornelius Vanderbilt, he was um he was a steamship and railroad tycoon back in like the late 1800s, early 1900s. And if you were to uh, transfer his wealth in dollars of today, he was estimated to be worth around 105 to $205 billion. Now, you think that that would be enough money to last his children's children's children children right but nope that's not how it works because his family his family tree that he left his millions of dollars to they spent all that money in 50 years staggering right man where does it go that is why the Books like The Psychology of Money, Learning When Enough is Enough, Getting Clear and Concise on Where You Want to Go, Who You Want to Become, How Much is Enough, What Are You Working For, What Are Your Goals, Your Ambitions, The Psychology that You Have as It Pertains to Money is going to either enhance your life or be deleterious in adding more stress and more unnecessary suffering and man causing you to be reduced diminished and just man taking it advantage of there is another interesting concept as it pertains to the psychology of money and i created a podcast episode about this but this is important to include in this episode because it is applicable to the psychology of money and the term is hedonic adaptation and essentially what that means is it doesn't matter what you get or how much money you earn your baseline happiness is always going to reside back to how it is right now so take inventory how do you feel right now that is how it's gonna feel after you get a billion dollars after you get whatever name the amount of money or whatever item it is after you get that car or that vacation or your name on the building your business whatever it is your baseline happiness is going to return back to how you're feeling right now there's never going to be one thing that makes you happy forever and there's never going to be one bad thing that makes you miserable forever that is just 
a fact of the human condition, hedonic adaptation, you always learn to come back to your base level of happiness no matter the circumstance. Sure, you might get the high and the feelings of joy and elation if you were to win the lottery, you know, today, tomorrow. But after that, hey, you're going to be back to the same person with the same problems, with the same mindset. Sure, it's going to solve some problems. But the problems that are the heaviest are the ones that money can't solve. One last thing before I hang up my hat on this episode. This is a great book, Psychology of Money. It gets you to think about things that you would never even consider. And that is the power that books hold within the text and the content. And something to consider is how money can buy you status. Now the seeds have been sown within the human condition that we all want to belong. We are all part of a hierarchy and we want to achieve status. And one of the ways that we do that is that we go out and we earn and our hard work is turned into money and we buy riches and jewelry and diamond and all these luxurious things that we associate with money. Now, money is complex because, hey, how do we know that this person didn't inherit a million dollars from their parents? Or how do we know that that person driving around in that Lamborghini is barely making their payments and they are one little road bump away from financial ruin? Ultimately, we need to stay in our lane and do the things that make sense to us based upon our financial goals and obligations and dreams and desires. Now, because money can have a influence on social status, and like I said before, we, we have a natural desire for status within the hierarchy. Uh, here's an explanation of how money buys status and why humans, we crave it. We desire money and status. Now, money can provide individuals with access to resources, opportunities, and symbols of wealth that are associated with high social status. Owning luxurious possessions, living in prestigious neighborhoods, or driving expensive cars are often seen as status symbols that signify wealth and success. Now, just because, you know, we live in the prestigious neighborhood or because we drive the fancy car, or we have all of those things that society says or associates with riches. You know, that doesn't mean that everything is as it seems. Now, there are visible displays of wealth. People often use visible displays of wealth to signal their social status and gain recognition from others. The ability to afford expensive items or engage in exclusive experiences can create a perception of success and superiority in the eyes of society. Now, the key word is perception of success. Like I said before, just because you are dripped up and you know wearing Gucci shoes socks a nice velour tracksuit with a Gucci hat hey that that could have been someone who you know either got those items for free or their knockoffs or they could be substantially in heavy debt like they just put all that on a credit card and they ruin their their finances because they want to look that part. They want to be perceived as successful. And that is one way to find yourself in a financial pit because you're trying to keep up with the Joneses. You're trying to go out and buy all, all the things that society says, hey, if you have this, you're successful. If you have that, you're successful. But man... It, things aren't always as they seem. Money is so complex. Status is weird. It's just, man, confusing, right? Us humans, um, we have a social comparison and relative status. Humans have a tendency to engage in social comparison, comparing themselves to others, 
to assess their relative status. And a key quote that resonates with me and that is applicable to that last sentiment is Theodore Roosevelt said that comparison is the robber of joy. Now, if you are comparing yourself to other people and what they have and what you have, and if you're basing your worth on material possessions, that's one way for you to give away your joy to things that can be you know, purchased with money. And that's not a way to live your life because ultimately, as you start to move up in the hierarchy, you start to compare yourself to other people who have nicer things and man, that cycle never continues look at Bernie Madoff he had 65 million dollars and then he started to compare himself to hey, someone who had a hundred million dollars there was a interview done with I, I believe it was King Charles and he was at this palatial uh, th- this dinner where it was all just you know cream of the crop the wealthy of the wealthiest and at one of King Charles's mansions, one of his real estate holdings, he noticed that at his at at that place, his his home, one of his, his homes, he only had nine landscapers. Well, guess what? His buddy had fifteen landscapers. Huh? Go figure, right? So that King Charles guy, he was envious of the person who had 15 landscapers compared to his 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 little nine come on get real that is where you know if you don't get your head right if you don't get your values and virtues correct these are the things that we're all going to be battling with having money can grant individuals a perceived sense of power and influence within their social networks financial resources can enable individuals to make decisions control resources and have an impact on others enhancing their social standing a couple more before i hang up this hat validation and social acceptance humans have a fundamental need for social acceptance and validation status often associated with wealth can fulfill this need being recognized as successful or affluent can lead to admiration respect and acceptance from others contributing to feelings of self-worth and belonging Now, there are so many things that are contained within this book, The Psychology of Money. I would encourage you to read the book or download the audio or the Audible app and listen to it yourself because, man, I'm only scratching the surface. The Psychology of Money runs deep. It is complex as anything else in this world. And because money is such an important aspect of being able to navigate through this world it's important for you to get your priorities straight identify where you want to go and then live your life accordingly it's important to realize and acknowledge the things that you buy and analyze if they are within your framework of your financial well-being and if they are good great grand you are moving in a manner that is going to promote your financial well-being. If you're doing things that are outside of your framework that you have established and identified, then, hey, you are going to be introducing needless suffering at the hand of, of yourself. In conclusion to this episode... It is important to note that while money brings benefits, it is also essential to develop a healthy relationship with it and use it responsibly. Money is a tool that can enhance our lives, but it is not the sole source of happiness or fulfillment. Balancing financial goals with personal values and prioritizing well-being is crucial for a sustainable and meaningful relationship with money. If you made it to the end of the podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I encourage you, once again, go out and get this book. I want you to have the buff body, mind, spirit, and bank. 
don't forget to like and subscribe. If you want to reach out with me in any way that you're able to, you can connect with me on Instagram at Ruben underscore Quavis. Shoot me a little message in the show notes or whatever app you're streaming with. And until next time, you know what time it is? It's onward. Always onward. <laughs>